Welcome to Tales of Panam Hunger Games podcast. My name is Claire, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm glad to have you all joining me this week. Make sure to check out my social media, which is Tales of Panam on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok for updates, episode information, and more. Could not be more excited to talk about the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes this week. I saw the movie last Friday, and I do already have plans to see it two more times in the next week. Might end up being more. Um, The original plan was to do two episodes on the movie, but since it was so nicely split into the three parts, I am going to do three episodes. Um, So you get to hear me talk even more. I know everyone's so excited about that. Um, Obviously, this episode will contain spoilers for the movie, so if you haven't seen it yet and you don't want anything spoiled for yourself, um, I'd recommend coming back to this episode after you watch it. This week's episode will cover part one of the Battle of Songbirds and Snakes movie entitled The Mentor. I am going to give a brief rundown of what happens in this part just so you know what I'm covering today as well as where this part starts and ends and if you need the refresher for whatever reason. The movie opens during the dark days, three years before the first Hunger Games. We see a young Coriolanus and Tigress Snow witnessing a man cutting off a woman's leg with the explanation that he is starving and has no choice. They return home to their grandmother, the grandmam, informing them that their father has been killed. Moving forward in time, it is the morning of the reaping and the coveted plinth prize is also to be announced that day. Coriolanus is hoping to win it to cover his university tuition as his family no longer has the wealth they once had. However, once at the academy, he learns that the plinth prize winner will not be announced yet as their final assignment to determine the winner is to mentor the tributes in the 10th Hunger Games, announced by Dr. Volumnia Gall and Dean Casca Highbottom who is credited with the creation of the Hunger Games. Coriolanus is assigned the girl from District 12, Lucy Gray Baird, who makes a lasting impression at the reaping after placing a snake down the mayor's daughter's dress and singing a song called Nothing You Can Take From Me. Coriolanus goes to greet Lucy Gray at the train station and winds up in a cage at the Capitol Zoo with the rest of the tributes, but he uses the opportunity to introduce Lucy Gray and gain the crowd's fate. In class, Coriolanus presents the idea of allowing the audience to bet on tributes by sending them food, water, and other supplies. He and his classmate Clemencia are tasked with writing up a proposal. Back at the zoo, the mentors attempt to give their tributes food, and Arachne Crane, another of Coriolanus' classmates, is killed by her tribute Brandy after taunting her with the food. Brandy is shot, shot and killed by peacekeepers. The next day, Coriolanus goes to turn in his and Clemencia's proposal, although he ended up writing the entire thing by himself. Clemencia takes credit for it and is subsequently attacked by Dr. Gall's snakes. The mentors and tributes are taken to tour the arena, but the building is bombed, killing several tributes and critically injuring Felix Ravenstill, one of the mentors who also happens to be the president's son. Coriolanus is trapped in the rubble, but Lucy Gray saves him. While in the hospital from his injuries, Coriolanus watches Luke. My goodness, I keep tripping over my words. (laughs) While in the hospital, this is a really long recap, I apologize, from his injuries, Coriolanus watches Lucy Gray's interview where she sings a song called The Ballad of Lucy Gray Baird about her life before the reaping. Coriolanus sneaks back into the arena and then goes to the zoo to tell Lucy Gray that the bombing opened up underground tunnels for her to hide in. He secretly gives her a compact filled with rat poison to use as a weapon in the arena. End of part one. I think I'm going totally off my memory the first time I saw it, which is foggy at best because I was also obviously like losing my mind and not super focused on any like of the really really minor details but that's what tomorrow's viewing is for or I guess today by the time this episode is out um but I believe that about covers it obviously I didn't get into detail on every single scene because you know hopefully all of you saw the movie or are going to see it so (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, that's the general rundown. Um, and let's just jump right into it because I have a lot of things to talk about, obviously. Um, I do want to preface this by saying I loved the movie. I thought it was great. I thought it was incredible. Um, I will give more of my like review, I guess, in the like final episode I'm doing on it where I'll kind of go over like my overall thoughts and like what I think of it. Um, but I really, really loved it. I thought it was very good. Um, a lot of stuff they did really well. Obviously, you know, there's always going to be things that I was like, I wish I, they would have done this differently. I wish they would have included this, not included this, whatever. Um, but it was very, very good. I really, really enjoyed it. But let's just talk about part one. So the, I love the way the movie opened. I did know the movie opened with this scene. Um, but I was, I thought it was a really good choice. Um, I love the use of like the title card that they gave us. Um, basically that, that said like, um, the dark days, three years before the first Hunger Games. And in a movie about war and its consequences amongst other things, but that is obviously one of the, the, probably the most central theme throughout the entire Hunger Games series is like, war and human nature and humanity um so i think opening with a scene in which we see a person do something like that is considered like horrific gruesome whatever you want to call it in the midst of a war is like bang right on the nose hit the bullseye like perfect perfect opening um and also you know to emphasize the fact that like you know because this I there's a lot of discussion of like is this book like humanizing snow is that a good thing I think that it does humanize him because he is a human despite being what he becomes and be how horrible he ends up becoming he is still a human being and I don't think that he would be a compelling villain if he were just like a two-dimensional like lifeless evil person figure and so, yes, this book and therefore this movie humanize him, but it also holds him accountable for his own choices. And so I think that emphasizing that, like, he and Tigris were, were young children when this war happened and, like, the lasting consequences that that has on them, both physically and mentally, um, is really, is really huge and was a great way to open the movie. Also, this was a scene in the book that could have very easily just been left out of the movie, and I really love that they included it. Um, and it also, like, touched on a few other things. Like, we saw the, the dog that almost attracts them, attacks them, um, which is, like, a nod to the, like, the rabies outbreak that happened during the war because there were, like, rabid animals on the streets. Um, and then, obviously, that comes back around with, like, Jessup contracting rabies. But that's, that's a part two thing. We'll get to that next week. Um... But yeah, I love this introduction. Um, and then, of course, we move to the morning of the raping. Um, this was very, very... Well, actually, I skipped something that was actually new-ish here. Like, it, we don't really get this in the book. Is that when they return home, um, the grandmam is there informing them that their father has been killed, specifying that he was killed in a rebel trap in the forests of District 12, which, remember that one for later. Um and giving Coriolanus his father's compass, which I was so excited that they included the compass in the movie because I love what like the comp his father's compass versus his mother's compact represent in the book. And these like two poles of like, is he gonna become like his father or his mother? And obviously it's his father in the end. Um, 
which is the worst of the two options. Um, so I love that they found a way to introduce the compass and like that. And then they did have him holding the compass at the end, um, like he does in the book, or like when he's making his way back from the woods in District 12. Um, so I loved that. And then we get the morning of the reaping. Now we're there. Um, I'm already skipping over stuff. This is great. But um, this was very, adhered very closely to the book with like Tigris putting this shirt, or, like kind of revamping this shirt for him. Um, I did think it was very interesting that they, in the movie, it's clear that he knows it's his father's old shirt. Whereas in the book, it is pointed out to him by one of his professors being like, oh, isn't that your father's old shirt? And then he like realizes it and he's like, oh yeah. And he like plays into it. But in the movie, he he knows that it was his because um, they say a line of dialogue about it, which is just interesting. And I think that like, it's, I think they, and I don't know if they leaned into it more in the movie because it was very much present in the book of the whole like he becomes his father thing but it was um, it was also very present in the movie um and so I think right off the bat choosing to have him wear something of his father's like consciously knowing that it was his just sort of like points us in that direction um even though he spends a lot of the book being like I actually think I want to be more like my mother until the end when he kind of just becomes like everything his father wanted him to be but in the movie, it is a little more like slowly inching in that direction, even from this very, very first scene. And even like using the compass, giving him the compass in this opening sequence, like really cementing this this trajectory he's on of becoming his father. Um, and there's a lot more to come with that. I'll be bringing it up a lot. <laughs> um, then we have the Plinth Prize, um, which is very interesting in the movie. Um, he goes to the reaping ceremony expecting them to announce the winner of the plinth prize and so it's in the book basically the way that it works is the plinth prize is announced during part two by straybo and sejanus being like whoever wins the whoever wins the hunger games will get or whoever's tribute wins the hunger games will by extension they view it as like them winning will get this prize um but in the book or in the movie it seems like it's sort of a thing of like this is a prize that is going to be awarded to one of the seniors um, at the academy. And then, of course, they end up not rewarding it and changing it so that it'll be, like, not necessarily the winner of the Hunger Games, but whoever, like, completes their assignment the best that they're being given with these tributes. Um, it was an interesting change. I don't know. I think it worked. In In the book, it's more like uh, Coriolanus is hoping to get, like, basically a scholarship to go to university but then once the plinth prize is announced he kind of like shifts to make that his primary goal um but in the movie it's just the plinth prize from the beginning i do think that this is this was good of establishing for sejanus's character like that his family is very wealthy um because that's obviously something you really need to know about them right off the bat and that he doesn't that he's unhappy about that fact i guess like he doesn't want to be a part of what his family did to have this much money which they never really get into in the movie they never get into like the snows losing their wealth um because of the like destruction quote-unquote of district 13 and the plinths sort of like stepping into that role with district 2 becoming the new like military center of the capital but it is this the plinth prize is used to establish that like Sejanus' so family has a lot of money and he's refers to it as like his father's money and obviously wants no part of it. Um, so it's good in like establishing his character. 
Another thing in this scene that I found very interesting and actually kind of liked is that Casca Highbottom, when he's announcing the assignment, like lays down this very strict no cheating rule. He's like, anyone caught cheating, like it it will not, I don't remember what the exact line is, obviously, but he does specifically mention that there's no cheating allowed. Because one of the things I think in the book is interesting is that like Coriolanus obviously becomes a peacekeeper because he's going to be expelled for cheating. But it's like, what constitutes cheating when there's never been any sort of rules set down for the Hunger Games? And obviously it's more complicated in his situation because he has on one hand Casca Highbottom who like wants him gone, who actively has it out for him and will use any opportunity to do so. And then Dr. Gall like wanted him to have that experience in the districts to sort of like shape his worldview so it's not as like cut and dry and he also in the book does steal food from the academy to give to lucy gray which in itself is is not allowed um but in the movie they do set a very strict like you're not allowed to cheat so there's a lot more like Coriolanus is kind of sneaking around to make these things happen that do end up like being considered cheating um, and then our, my best friend, Sejanus Plinth, oh my gosh, he was so, Josh Andres Rivera was so good in this movie, the perfect Sejanus Plinth. Um, every time he was on screen, I was like giggling, kicking my feet. I love him so much. Um, but anyway, I do, the first introduction we have to Sejanus is like, Coriolanus and all of his classmates are like shit talking him basically. Um, which again is also establishing like that there's some sort of like status thing going on where they don't view Sejanus as being on the same level as them which you obviously learn or know if you read the book is because he came from District 2 and so they still view him as capital in many ways Um, and they make fun of him for calling his mom Ma which is hateful and I think that they should stop (laughs) but he comes over and he has this little like catty exchange with like Festus and Arachne where he's like Festus is like, Sejanus, you made it to the reaping for once. And he's like, you made it to graduation, Festus. We're both surprised. I love it. I love that they got that he gets to like, because I think not to like go back to the original movies and say things I didn't like about them because we know I loved them overall, but obviously I have my critiques. One of them, I think most notably in the very first movie is that Peta like doesn't have as much of a personality as he did in the book. Like, in the book, he has a really distinct, like, sense of humor. He has, like, a like a real defined personality, whereas in the movie, I think a little bit of that got lost, or at least, like, it was not as prevalent. I liked this being our introduction to Janus because it shows, like, outside of his, like, base character traits, because it's important, I think, for characters to have, like, their morals and their motivations and all the things that, like, make a character, but also to have, like, personality outside of that, because that's what makes them, like, human and three-dimensional and not just like a like caricature of a person and so I like this introduction of his character and also just because I was like get him Sejanus you know it was so funny um and this is when he's sort of like nobody really likes my father but they do love his money sort of keying us into like there's some family tension happening there um also they kept Every time Sejanus said a line from the book that I love, I was, like, screaming, crying. Like, I was so excited. Um, But they kept the line at the reaping where he, at the reaping, he says, um, Coriolanus is like, why are you upset? You got the pick of the litter when he gets the tribute from District 2. And he says, you forget I'm part of that litter. Oh, my goodness. It's crazy. Yeah, no, whenever, (laughs) every line from the book that was in the movie, I was like, that was in the book. Um... 
Very exciting. Um, so now we're at the District 12 Reaping, where we are introduced to Lucy Gray Baird. Um, her introduction in the movie was like exactly how I pictured it in the book, which I loved. Um, I know the clip of the Reaping where she like puts the snake down Mayfair's dress did get released a little beforehand, but I didn't watch it because I just wanted to wait and see it in the theater. Um, but yeah, it was very, very good. Also, I'll talk forever about like the score of this movie because it's so good. And I think James Newton Howard is a genius, but the score in this scene, um, I've been listening to the score like obsessively since it came out, but it's called Assigning the Mentors. And it, I love like, even if you just listen to it, you can, the transition in like, the style of the music and the instruments being used and the melodies being used, the shift when it cuts from like the Academy students watching the reaping to like actually being in district 12 with Lucy Gray um, is a really good like tonal shift. And then it like lends itself really well from when like Coriolanus as a character goes from the capital to district 12. And then of course, Rachel Zegler's voice we knew is insane, but she literally every single song I was like, jaw on the floor she's so good um and her singing at the reaping um and I think this captured perfectly and I of course like people are being like she's so weird like and by people I mean like people on the internet are being like she's like me when Lucy Gray started singing at the reaping that was like so cringy and weird and I like first of all if you're complaining about how much music there was in this movie one why do you hate having fun and two, it's called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. The secondary protagonist or like main character is a performer and a singer and a songwriter. So like, I don't really know what you thought you were getting into, especially knowing Rachel Zegler was cast and she is like a actress and singer. So I really don't know what you thought this movie was going to be. And also it's not just like music for the sake of there being music. They're using music. Music is the way she communicates and interacts with the world and the way she understands her experiences and also we know from the original books that Suzanne loves the idea of like music as a tool in rebellion and as a form of protest and that's like a big thing in this book is that she uses music as a form of protest because that's like how she knows how to speak her mind and that's why she says like I only sing when I have something to say and, but also the thing at the reaping is that you're supposed to be a little like is like that's what everyone in the capital is saying and that's what you're supposed to be thinking as a reader is like why is she singing is she like is she crazy you know like it's supposed to be this sort of like what's her deal because she is a mystery throughout the entire book but of course when we are first introduced to her we don't know anything about her and this is a very like bold introduction to her character and so you're supposed to not know what to make of it at first and then as you continue watching and then now of course I go back and I watch it and I'm like yes I love it um or I read that scene and I love it so much but it is supposed to be a little like what's going on at first so people are like getting that point but they're thinking that that was like a fault of the movie and it's like no that's the point <laughs> um and then we moving on to like Coriolanus meeting her at the train station you know and she's obviously as she is in the book very like wary of him like what is this like nicely dressed capital boy doing here trying to like give me a rose when I'm like literally about to die weird um and she's not really sure what to make of him and then he ends up in the the car with them going to the zoo 
Um, and Reaper basically is like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> um, and everyone's kind of like on board with that. But Lucy Gray sticks up for him, basically saying, you know, he's my mentor. Please don't kill him. I like might actually need him. And it's sort of this like, you can see it in the way that they played it in the movie too, that it's sort of like she even though she obviously doesn't know him or trust him yet or necessarily even like like him or think that he has her best interest in mind one you know it might be nice to have a mentor and also like she just doesn't like the idea of them just killing him in this car like that um so she does stick up for him which sort of starts this like trust that is going to grow between them and then obviously ultimately be broken um you know (laughs) you all know what happens um but she does think of him. They also kept the line where Coral is like, where she's like, this is my mentor. And Coral's like, do we all get a mender? Um, which I love. <laughs> I, oh my God, we'll, we'll talk about Coral. Part two, at the things I have to say about that girl. Oh my gosh, obsessed. Anyway, um, but yeah, so they don't end up killing him, obviously. Um, oh my God, I totally forgot. There's this moment when they're getting off the train when they arrive in the capital where Jessup like helps Lucy Gray down and we see like district partners sort of helping each other like off the train and I do like there is always in the games this sense of like district loyalty um and they really like played into that in this movie which I love um but again that's like part two. Oh my god I don't know how I'm gonna fill my parts about my thoughts about part two into one episode part two was already my favorite and then somehow it was better in the movie than it was in the book like oh my gosh but then they end up at the zine, the zine, hello, sorry, my notes say zoo scene, and so my brain just, like, turned it all into one word, um, but they end up at the zoo, Coriolanus ending up in the cage with all the tributes, um, and I love the way they did the, the scene with Lucy Gray leaning over to him and being, like, just own it, and that's when he sort of introduces her to the crowd, she, Rachel Seigler nailed this, this scene, I mean, they, everyone in this movie nailed every scene. The acting was just like beyond words, but she was especially good in this scene, I think, when she's sort of like introducing herself to the Capitol and she's trying to like be kind to the children, but she definitely has this like hostile edge toward Lucky Flickerman because he's like shoving cameras and microphones in her face. Um, And she is like trying, you know, not to engage directly with him and definitely like, you know, when he's like, when Coriolanus says, like, if my tribute's brave enough to be in here, I should be too. And she's like, well, I didn't have a choice. And it's like a lighthearted joke, but also like, no, it isn't because she's literally being forced to be in here. So there's that kind of like double meaning to everything she's saying in this scene, which I I think was done really well. And then of course, Coriolanus, also this, this, they did get the part where Lucky calls her Lucy and she's like, my name is Lucy Gray. Um, so everyone on, like, TikTok and Twitter who's making videos calling her Lucy, her name is Lucy Gray, it's actually important to her character that her name is Lucy Gray and not Lucy, so think on that. Um, it's even more important with her than it is with the other members of the Covey, like, I'm still, like, why are you calling Maude Ivory Maude and stuff like that, but, like, um, with Lucy Gray, her name is not just first name ballad, second name color, the her whole name is a ballad. Lucy Gray is the name of the character from the ballad, and Gray is a color. So like it's it's doubly as important. Um, and also like that's her name is Lucy Gray. She likes to be called Lucy Gray. So like that's there's like a, again the fact that there's a scene of someone calling her Lucy and her correcting them like should be enough. 
Um, anyway, okay, now I'm gonna say my like negative thing about this movie. My biggest critique, which I've are so many people have already been like DMing me about this or like on, being on Twitter, being like, "What'd you think of this?" And I'm like, "I, you all knew I would have something to say about this." Clemencia, girl, I am so sorry that they did that to you. And by that, I mean, like, basically cutting her entire arc. Not basically, they literally did. In fact, it's kind of implied that she dies in the movie, which is hateful. Um, also, the like, the SFX makeup that we could have had of her turning into a snake would have been so cool. But, you know, I'm trying not to be too bitter about it, but I was, like, mad when I when it became apparent to me that she was never going to show up again. Um because as everyone here knows, she's my second favorite character in this book. And like literally barely did anything in the movie. Not like Ashley Liao was amazing. Of course, she's so talented. And this is nothing against her. Of course, of course. Um, but I was a little like, where's my girl? Where? Why isn't she showing back up? Um, it was funny too, because like she um, was like, what was I going to say? Sorry, I totally just spaced out. Um I I kind of thought that maybe they wouldn't include the scene of her in the hospital, even though I really wanted that scene. I mean, I literally dressed up as that scene for Halloween, um, which now my Halloween costume might be the canonical depiction of Clemencia Dovecote because there isn't a movie one to contradict it. Although I still hold out hope for the deleted scenes, which everyone here knows how I feel about my deleted scenes. So we're going to have a lot to talk about when those come out. But um so I kind of figured they might not keep that but then like when they're in the like mentor room watching the games I was like okay she's probably gonna like show back up here and then the games were going on and I was like oh she's gone oh she's actually probably dead um hateful because Dr. Gall like uh, when she's like warning Coriolanus is not to tell anyone is like says the line about her like having the flu which is basically their like cover story and it's the same in the books too but then after she never shows up again, and then when, spoilers for part two, when Sejanus is in the arena, um, and she's like, and Coriolanus is like, what if we like literally die in there? And then she's like, I'll oh, just say it was the flu. So I think they were trying to imply that Clemencia died, which is so foul. Also, to get a little nitpicky on Clemencia's character, she had like a different personality in the movie because in the book, it's stated that she like doesn't raise her hand in class and everyone's like fine with that because she's like nice and studious and everyone likes her and obviously you know everyone is kind of like a capital snob all these kids are a little like bratty whatever but like it was just in the fact when they when they assign when Dr. All assigns the paper to Coriolanus Clemencia like stands up and is like gets like herself involved in writing it in a way that like seemed kind of out of character for her um and then when I don't remember the exact line but I'll I can come back to that once I've seen the movie again um but the biggest one was like so I this is so nitpicky I feel like bad complaining about this but when they like go to turn in their paper that Coriolanus like wrote without her and the other thing is Arachne was not part of the group writing the paper in this one so it was more so of like not that Arachne was supposed to write it with them, but that Clemencia was just like, our classmate just died. I wasn't really trying to like write an essay. Um, but when they turn in, in the book, she kind of is trying to like make stuff up to pretend that she helped write it because 
probably she doesn't want to like get in trouble get a bad grade whatever but in the movie when Dr. Gall is like who actually physically wrote this Clemencia is like I did and I'm like I did she would not do that like character assassination um and then yeah she like literally is probably dead so we did we did lose bad on that one <laughs> I will not lie um and that was definitely person on like a personal level that was my biggest like disappointment with the movie for sure but you know it is what it is moving on from that because I don't want to spend too long being like talking about things I didn't like um I thought they nailed the dynamic that Sejanus and Dr. Gall have this like competitive thing that's going on between them where Sejanus is probably the only person who's not like scared of her or at least is not gonna like back down against her um I mean partially just because like oh my Viola Davis we know she is literally I in my opinion the most talented actress of her generation and possibly any generation um and but like watching like her and Josh Andres Rivera acting off each other was so good I like love the way that they they did their scenes and like when they're in the classroom and they're going back and forth was so good um and they were both like nailing that that kind of dynamic between the two of them um there was also some changes in the like way that the tributes are getting fed you know because everything was kind of like sped up the here's the thing about the pacing and like I know everyone's always like the pacing the pacing the pacing I think that I it's just the fact that and I'm not saying this is a negative I think this was the case in a lot of the earlier movies too and it's kind of just like the inevitable reality when you're trying to condense a over 500 page book into a less than three hour movie but it was still crazy how like things that happened over like weeks and weeks in the book happened in like two days like when they were touring the arena and Lucy Gray was like don't let me die in here tomorrow and I was like tomorrow girl you're there's like a whole week anyway so it was kind of it was kind of crazy how fast they were going um but so yeah they did like condense everything down another Sedanus line from the book that they kept that actually was on my list of like please god let this be in the movie um, is when he says, I'm so blameless, I'm choking on it. That's a really good line. That's such a good line. And they kept it. And he, him and Coriolanus got to have a little scene where they're like eating lunch together. Um, so that was fun. Anyway, moving on to Arachne gets killed. Um, this was definitely one of the more like gruesome scenes in the movie as it should be because it's one of the more gruesome scenes in general not the only one there's some later that we'll get to once again part two girl we we have much to talk about um but i the one thing i do want to point out about the scene is that after she dies sejanus is kind of like standing off to the side of her body holding like the napkin that he had like the sandwiches in and i he was a because in the um in the book, he sprinkles the breadcrumbs on Brandy's body after she gets shot. And I think that that's, like, what he was standing there waiting for was he was going to, like, sprinkle the breadcrumbs. Because that's, like, his thing. It's, like, the district tradition to, like, sprinkle breadcrumbs so that people have, like, sustenance on their journey. Um, and he does it to Marcus. That's, like, part of why he goes into the arena. So him doing it to Brandy. They didn't show him doing it, but that's what I was thinking when he was standing there. I was like, oh, he's going to do the breadcrumbs just like in the book. And then of course they came back to it later when they when he goes into the arena. Onto a scene that I absolutely loved. 
is the scene where the mentors all get to meet with their tributes and like strategize. Um, first of all, I jumped when Reaper kind of like jumps at Clemencia. Like I literally am glad I wasn't like holding a drink or anything because I would have spilled it. Um, which also that scene was like improvised. Ashley Liao was like, yeah, that was my <laughs> genuine reaction because I like jumped out of my seat. Um, but I love this scene because we get to see the various like dynamics between mentors and their tributes. Um, and for a lot of them, that's their very first time interacting. Like some of the noteworthy ones were Festus and Coral. Festus being like, I want to win. And for that to happen, you need to win. So, and then like Sejanus trying to get Marcus to speak to him and him not going for it. Um, and some of the tributes being like crying, some of them trying to be like tough, scary, indifferent, all their various like quote unquote strategies. Lamina, oh my god, Lamina has been my favorite tribute, but like this movie, I have not stopped thinking about her ever since I saw it. Um, and I will have a lot more to say about her because she like, but she and this is true in the book too, like spends her entire mentor meeting crying and is everyone is like viewing her as weak. Um, and as we will come to learn, she's really not, and I'll I'll get to that because I love her so much. Um, and she's so fascinating to me. But yeah, I love this scene. And obviously everyone was acting, acting, acting. Um, especially because for a lot of the tributes, mentors, this is like their moment, you know, like there's obviously not as much time in the movie to really focus in on every single one of them as much as there would be in the book. But I think this scene did a really good job of showing us those dynamics between like mentor and tribute when there wasn't a lot of time to really delve into them. So that was really great. Then we have the arena bombing, the scene of Lucy Gray pulling Coriolanus out of the rubble was so good. The music was everything. And like Marcus trying to get her to run with him and her turning around and her like really contemplating it for a second um, and then going back for Coriolanus. Uh, and him like hit, you can see in his eyes, like he realizes that she is his only hope in that moment. Um, and so when she comes back to save him that like once again we're the whole the whole thing with them in this movie and even with the book too is like building up trust building up trust so that when they break it at the end it is a big deal and it is a big moment um so this is one of the most monumental like building blocks of their trust because she does save him instead of running um then we have Coriolanus in the hospital which this was another moment where it was like oh my god everything's moving so fast because you know he'd been doing his like asking her to sing and she was kind of like get me a guitar and maybe I'll think about it which I was like pluribus bell I salute you king I'm so sorry that you're not in this movie um because they did she did just kind of like find a guitar from who knows where <laughs> but I was thinking about you pluribus do not worry you were on my mind but yeah she uh does her interview where she sings her song that she wrote about like Billy Tope and alludes to all the things we learn later about like him about Mayfair like getting her dad to pull her name um and Billy Tope like cheating on her with Mayfair and all those fun little things she had going on back home this scene I was like screaming internally though because so yeah this this song's called The Battle of Lucy Gray Baird um 
And so it is like very much her story. It is very personal about her. Everyone knows it's about her and it's about this sort of life she had before the reaping. And it's this scene is so good because they're showing like everyone crying, which was a thing in the book too. Like people were like crying, like they're showing Tigress and even Sejanus having these like really emotional reactions to it. And then they show Coriolanus and he looks enraged. And it's like, it's it's even fun in the movie too because in the book obviously you're getting like a play-by-play of everything that's going on in his mind but it's sort of if like you hadn't read the book would be a like why is he mad his tribute is like and they have like the donation numbers in the screen and she's getting like hundreds into the thousands of donations and so it's sort of like why is he mad he's like winning by all accounts um but we know that he's mad because he's jealous because she's singing about a guy back home and a life she has that has nothing to do with him and he doesn't like that. And so then when he goes to see her at the the zoo again and she tries to kiss him and he's like, is this even real? Because like I heard you sing that song, whatever. But we're really getting to see like the, the acting for Tom Blythe and that scene was incredible because you like see the anger And it does so much to express his feelings when we don't have the benefit of his narration to tell us what's going on inside his mind, which I'm sure as an actor, I mean, I'm I'm not an actor, but I'm sure like for Tom Blythe was one of the biggest challenges is like, like I said, you don't have narration to tell us what he's thinking. It all has to be in dialogue and what's on his face. And a lot of times it's just what's on his face when he doesn't necessarily have any dialogue to kind of point us in that direction. And I think he did such a good job with that especially towards the end obviously but you know well we'll talk about that and I'll be starting the Oscar campaign myself so um and then yeah they do almost kiss at the 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 zoo and then there's what everyone is pointing out is an Everlark parallel which I agree in a certain way where he's like is this even real um because like him and Katniss are meant to parallel each other and also be held in opposition to each other in many ways and so I think that being like is this real? And then having the Katniss and Peeta thing be like, yes, it is real. And for them, she's like, yeah, it's real. But like, it's not because we know it's all going to fall apart. But yeah, I've seen a lot of people pointing out that as a parallel. And I'm like, yeah, I do think that it is intentional to sort of draw parallels between these characters and these relationships only to break them in the end because Coriolanus and Katniss at the end of the day could not be more different in their morals and in their interpersonal relationships. They also add in a scene here where Coriolanus like sneaks into the arena again and discovers these like underground tunnels have opened up and then that's why he goes to the zoo to tell Lucy Gray being like you can use this and also okay I'm obligatory I have to think about Haymitch at least once during this movie and the moment for me was when he's telling her he's like there will be weapons in the middle but don't go for them just turn and run and hide and I was like wow he's just saying exactly what Hamish told Katniss and Katniss all sort of didn't listen she tried not to and then Peter distracted her um and Lucy Gray of course ends up not listening either but uh, I was like okay I thought about Hamish we we did it um and also this was a change that was very interesting to me because in the book he gives her his mother's compact and basically like implies to her that she should put rat poison in it But in the movie, which of course at the beginning of the movie when they're showing their like rundown apartment, I saw the rat poison and I was like, oh yeah, it's coming. Um, But he puts the rat poison in the compact and gives it to her. So he is even more like responsible. You can't even play the like, oh, I didn't put the rat poison in there. Like that was all her. Like 
he he put it in there and he gave it to her so it was like even more and especially after they'd already laid down a strict like you're not allowed to cheat rule there's no way for him to wiggle out of that one but yeah he did like go in and search the arena because he was like actually i'm she's gonna win if i have anything to say about it because they'd already had the conversation which she's like start by thinking that i can actually win and so yeah he is even more instrumental in like doing the things that become what he gets in trouble for and what they're like trying to expel him for and why he becomes a peacekeeper the rat poison obviously being the biggest one and even like i will um get into this more obviously but when he puts the handkerchief in the snake tank it's not like it's passing by him and he just happens to put it in he like he literally rips open his stitches to have an excuse to go into dr gall's office and then like sneaks out and puts the handkerchief in the tank like it is all a lot, everything's a lot more deliberate in the movie in terms of, like, the things that he is doing to help Lucy Gray win. God, I'm just thinking about how excited I am to talk about part two. Like, I literally have not thought about anything else in the past week since I saw it. Um, also, when I'm, by the time this episode is out, I'll be, like, probably watching the movie um, for the second time, and we're seeing an IMAX, and I'm so excited because I just know it's gonna go crazy. Especially some of the, like, audio effects that were happening in just, like, the small theater I was seeing it in. I was like, oh, this is going to go so hard in IMAX. Um, But, yeah, so that is part one. Um, Part one, as it is in the book, too, is a lot of, like, exposition, a lot of introducing these relationships, a lot of building the relationships between characters, introducing us to various characters. Um, And I think that it was very good. Part two, I, or part one, I I would say that part one adhered most closely to the book out of the three parts. Part two was the most different. Um, And I say that in the most positive way possible because I think it was largely like improvements or things that it's like, yeah, this might have made sense in the book, but it made more sense to do it this way on screen, like that kind of thing. Um, But like part one was pretty close. Part three, I don't know what it's not a competition, so I don't know why I'm trying to say which one was most close to the book, but, um, but yeah, I loved part one. I thought it was so good. It was, yeah, it was very, like, the timeline was very condensed, but I didn't necessarily think that was a bad thing, because I knew this movie was going to be faster paced than the book. It always is, especially in this case, where the book is, like, significantly longer than the other books, um, and I know there's discussion of, like, should this have been two movies? I will hold my thoughts on that until the end because I don't really feel like getting into that debate right now. Um, but for the most part in part one, it was just, like, a more condensed timeline where they have less time with their tributes, which, you know, is just inevitable in this circumstance. So I didn't have, like, a quote-unquote, like, pacing issue with it. It was just, a, like, once I got used to the idea of, like, things are moving a lot quicker, it was fine. As I said, everyone was acting, acting so well. Um, so much talent in this movie. Like, I mean, you have like, you know, people like Viola Davis, Pierre Dinklage, who are like very well established actors. So like we knew they were gonna be so good. And then you have like some of the younger actors who I'm so excited to see like what they're gonna do after this. Um like, you know, like Tom Blythe obviously had a had a career before this and was a very successful actor before this. But like after this, I'm really excited to see like how the impact this is going to have on his career, the kind of roles he's going to be taking after this. And same thing with like Josh Andreas Rivera, like who was not obviously not like he was very successful before this. But like this is sort of skyrocketing him to a new level of like recognition. Um, 
Hunter Schaefer, uh, another one we already knew. She was so unbelievably talented and perfectly, perfectly cast as Tigress. She probably had my favorite line delivery in the entire movie in terms of like where I was like, where is the Oscar? Um, but it's at the very end. And now you probably can put together which one it is. But um, so, yeah. Wow. Can't believe we're actually talking about this movie after how many months, how many over a year of build up to it? or of this podcast longer than a year of buildup for me in my life. Um, but in terms of me doing this podcast to get everyone hyped up for it. Um, also, I, of course, want to know what everyone else thought about the movie. So I've already gotten like DMs and messages from people, which makes me very happy. But as usual, my DMs are open. My email is open. I if My TikToks have like, if you comment on my TikTok, I probably will not see it. I'm gonna be so for real. Like, I'm bad at reading comments. Um, so if it, like, DM me if you actually want to talk about it. Same goes for, like, twi- my Twitter DMs are open. You know, I'm very, I've said this before, I'm very accessible. Um, so, but I really want to know what everyone thought. Like I said, people have already been messaging me about Clemencia, and I'm like, I know, I know. <laughs> Trust me, I know. But yeah, I feel like the part two episode is going to be significantly longer than this one because a lot of what I have to say about part one is kind of the same stuff I said about this part of the book but part two was very different and I have a lot that I want to expand on so get ready for probably a slightly longer episode next week which is exciting. Thank you for joining me this week on Tales of Panem. Next week I will continue my discussion of the movie covering part two, The Prize. If you have any specific questions or topics you'd like me to cover, you can DM them to me on any social media or send them to my email, which is talesofpanam at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave a review or a rating of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would be very appreciated. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next week.